Welcome to Heart Talk. I'm your host, writer, educator, and creator, Tracy Michelle. For a long time, I associated sanctuary with two things. The place I go to within my physical church to worship and the places I go to in my home or in nature to experience restoration and peace. And I wasn't entirely wrong about that. Many of the sanctuaries of churches I've been to have been places where I've been able to lay my burdens down Uh, safely at the altar and and feel free to worship God as I knew God to be with abandon. I've also had some intimate moments with my creator while sitting on a beach watching the tide come in or pulling weeds in my garden or even driving long distances in my car. These were all sanctuaries of sorts for me, places where spirit met me and loved on me and where the constant distractions of my life were muted. But recently, as I've delved more into contemplative spirituality, I've learned a couple more things about sanctuary. First, that it doesn't have to be a place I go to outside of myself. It's not necessarily an external location. Through prayer and meditation, I'm learning how to quiet myself on the inside. I'm learning that there is a space way down deep in me that is still and holy and is another meeting place for me and God. It's so incredibly hard to reach that space, though, if I'm honest. The noise of my mind, the noise of my life make it difficult to get still long enough to access that particular sanctuary. But That's why I have a practice. That's why we have spiritual practices. Um, Every day I practice, every day I try to take a few minutes to quiet the noise and just listen. Now, some days I leave that space, that quiet, in tears, having had the sweetest moment of connection. Other days, nothing, like literally nothing happens. But what I've learned is that I'm not competing with anyone, that there isn't some arbitrary measure of success that I need to apply to this thing. There's no one giving out A's for, or F's even, for a good meditation or a great prayer session, (laughs) right? Um, It's a kind of rest. Which brings me to the next thing that I've learned. We all need silence. It's hard, I know, to embrace it. I've been observing the various responses to the quarantine and the limitations presented to us by the pandemic. And what I've noticed the most is that so many people resist silence. They resist stillness. They resist being alone, not lonely, but alone. They resist the isolation. And to be clear, isolation is so hard. We need people. We need hugs and kisses. We need touch and engagement. But there's also value in being alone with ourselves. Stuff is going to come up, though, for sure. Get quiet enough and you'll begin to unearth some things that maybe don't feel as good. But what I've come to learn is that there is something on the other side of that. There's peace. There's a deep sense of joy. If we're willing to wade through the muck, if you will, um, if we're willing to simply be still and watch that muck float on by in our hearts and minds, not attach any judgment to it, not judge ourselves, not get angry with ourselves about this thing that we're thinking or this thing that happened long ago, we can experience contentment and rest like we've never known it before. I am a witness. What I've also learned is this Some of that noise I have in my mind is a result of a very real anxiety disorder that I live with. And if you add to that post-traumatic stress syndrome and the mental health challenges 
um, that come from, you know, constantly being inundated with racial trauma um, and racial violence, um, being still is difficult. I mean, it's probably near impossible, right? As a writer, I often use my creative arts to pour some of that pain and that uncertainty in my work. I try to work out some of that anxiety on the page. But for some, it's, that's not always feasible, right? Add to that the challenges that come with just the business of art, the business of writing and publishing. And someone wrestling with uh, any kind of mental health challenge is liable to have a major battle ahead of them. So that's why in this season finale, and just let me just stop and say thank you to everyone who has supported um, Heart Talk. Um, this really is just a labor of love of my heart. I get to talk to so many wonderful people about this intersection of art and healing and wellness. And I've just been so grateful um, that we've had such a, a large amount of people listening and, and giving us feedback on it. And I'm just so grateful and I'm excited about what we have planned for season three, which will be coming out um, later in the fall. But let's get back to, you know, the intersection of arts and mental health. I'm so glad I got to talk to writer, visual artist and teacher Claudia Love Meyer. Claudia is a wonderful writer and artist who lives in Lexington, Kentucky. She holds a Master's of Fine Arts from Spalding University, and many know her from her popular blog, uh, which ran uh, for many years in the early 2000s, Ragamuffin Diva. Others know her novels, uh, Murder, Mayhem, and A Fine Man, Wounded, the Exorcister uh, series. Her creative nonfiction has appeared in Dame Magazine and the Louisville Review. She is the author of Don't You Fall Now, a memoir where she shares the story of being a mother diagnosed with bipolar disorder and other health challenges, uh, caring for a child with mental illness and a traumatic brain injury. It is a powerful story. New Season Books published that back in 2018. And when I tell you it, it, it just moved my heart. I was so grateful to be able to be the platform for that book. Um, so let's dive into our conversation with Claudia. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Tracy. What's up, girl? What is up? Man, thank you so much for joining me here at Heart Talk. I know we've been trying to connect for a minute, and I'm, I am so grateful that you are going to be our final episode for this second season of the podcast. We've had some amazing uh, guests this season, um, but I know talking to you, one thing that I've always... Um, loved about you is just that you're very transparent and you're just very you right like you you know you you're authentic and I think that's a fantastic way to um op or in or close this season so as we do here at Heart Talk uh, we ask all of our guests this um how is your heart today Claudia my heart is good today my heart is you know, I'm kind of in a season where I'm doing a lot of waiting on God for things that I have desired for a long time. Um, so I'm in that position of uh, wanting, yet having so much gratitude, knowing that God will provide, God always, you know, provides, that we're never forgotten or forsaken. Mm -hmm. So... So I'm, I am uh, between waiting and, you know, receiving. Mm, that's powerful. Between waiting and receiving. Wow. Dang, that was a word for me. <laughs> Out the gate. <laughs> you know, it takes patience to get through this life. And if mm -hmm. we don't have the patience, we, we get in a lot of trouble mm -hmm. uh, trying to substitute what we want you know like yeah. we, we know what we want God to give us but you know we'll try to try to make it happen 
you know, right. like that Abraham, Sarah, Hagar thing. You know, yeah. Like, let, me, let me help you out, God. Yeah. Since you don't seem to be, you know, responding. Of course, God is always responding. Um, it's just, can we wait it out? Can we, can we live in a place of trust hmm. and I, obedience? Yeah. And you know, the, the thing with me is that I am notorious for trying to manufacture circumstances, right? <laughs> to try to, to try to fix it because, you know, things aren't moving in the time frame that I would like for them to move. And um, I'm experiencing now, even as a writer, you know, this, I guess this resurgence of my career and but I'm like but I've been doing this for 18 years like I started you know I'm like but whose time you know whose timeline are you on Tracy right you know <laughs> I mean right. if it took 18 years it took 18 years if it takes another 15 it takes another 15 and is that okay because it's more about the process it's right. about the journey and not necessarily about some arbitrary destination that you have right. So that waiting and receiving piece, um, I feel like we're always alternating between that. Definitely. Right? And, you know, that's all of us trying to manufacture making it happen. I, don't, I can't think of anybody that just serenely, you know, sits and waits and they're not pulling their hair out or screaming or <laughs> doing something crazy. Um, that's, it's not just you. Yeah. <laughs> It is not just you. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, one of the things that I wanted to bring you on to talk about is that you've been very candid um, just in social media and also in your own work. Um, I promise you guys, if you have not read her work, you need to run, do not walk. And I'm not saying this as someone who has published at least one of her books, um, but I am saying this as, as just an avid fan of hers from day one um go out and get all the things right and um uh, get her books but you've been very candid about your uh, mental health challenges and the mental health challenges that have shown up um in your life through you know various family members um and so you know in the news cycle right now um there's a lot of conversation about our friend kanye west and our friend. <laughs> And, you know, I, I was reading this article and it was it was talking about how millennials and Gen Zers are struggling, or mostly millennials are struggling to, um, to they don't want to let Kanye West, Kanye West go, right? Mm -hmm. Like they remember the Kanye West of old, of ye old, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so um, and he's, you know, it's been a very public battle with mental illness. Um, and so I'd love for you to share your thoughts on this relationship between mental illness or mental challenges, mental health and um, art, right? So, you know, we live in cancel culture right now. It's like, you know, someone does something, acts out, whatever. Um, and we're quick to say, okay, this is a person I'm not going to support anymore, right? And yet, these are often people that we have enjoyed their talent, we've enjoyed their work. Um, and so what about this notion of this intersection of mental health and art? I'd love to hear your thoughts about that and your thoughts on what's happening right now, even with Kanye. Well, one thing about artists, I think there's just some wiring in the brain that people who have this propensity to feel more deeply, uh, to be able to look at life in these very often dramatic, uh, but sometimes really surprising ways, uh, there is a connection between artists and mental illness that goes way back. Um, I can't remember her name, but a woman wrote this book, uh, Touched touched by fire or touched with fire. Uh, and she has bipolar disorder. I think her name is Kay Redfield. I'm not sure. But anyway, she has bipolar disorder. And she wrote about her, her breakdown. And she also wrote about many, many creatives and artists being people that have some form of mental illness. Um, for me, it's bipolar disorder. Um, and of course, you know, you hear about a comedian, a, a very gifted comedian like a, a Robin Williams mm -hmm. who committed suicide, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just like one of the funniest people on the planet, mm -hmm. yet dealing with these 
horrific uh, bouts of depression and so many others, um, writers that have committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Sylvia Plath. And, and yeah, that's the first and, one that came to mind. Yeah. You know, uh, but a lot of these artists just simply had mental illness and they were not able to navigate uh, the, the choppy waters of depression or mania. Uh, because, you know, for me, I am not as destructive when depressed. I am, I, I have had seasons where I wanted to end it all during depression, so I didn't have the energy to, mm-hmm. to act on it. But when I was hypomanic or manic, well, that, you know, I was, you know, a disaster uh, and far more dangerous because my impulse control was almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. So any thought toward, you know, doing something destructive to myself, I had the energy to act mm. on it immediately. So it was, uh, in fact, the suicide attempts that I had, they were all during manic states. They were never during a depressed state. Mm. Um, so there is a clear connection that studies have been done between artists and mental illness. And the thing is, I think you have to have a certain degree of humility in order to navigate these two things. And artists are not particularly well known for their humility. (laughs) So, um, you know, it takes humility to number one, accept your diagnosis, Mm. whether you're being diagnosed by a doctor, which you should be, if you even suspect you have mental illness, or if you've kind of done a self-diagnosis, like you just say, well, you know, I know I get really down, I get depressed. You know, most people can identify what depression looks like, even though there are subtleties to depression that maybe people don't know. But um, that's a a whole new talk show. But, um, (laughs) you know, people can say, hey, I'm depressed, where they may not be able to say, hey, I know what's wrong. I'm manic. Um, So it takes some humility to accept that, that diagnosis. Then it takes more humility to get on medication or to go into therapy because you have to, you know, humbly admit that there's something wrong, that there's something that you can no longer manage on your own. So you need the humility to accept, okay, this is, this is how my brain works. This is what I've got to deal with. You need it to be, begin some type of therapeutic process. If you want to take medicine or if you want to just do talk therapy, um, I definitely recommend that no matter, even if it's anxiety, that you have someone that you are working with to help manage your symptoms. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, so there's a humility in that. And then there's a level of humility needed to surround yourself with people who will support you. Hmm. People who recognize when you're in trouble because you don't always recognize when you're sick. Um, uh, But the people around you, they generally, they may know before you do. And well, they often know before you do. Yeah. Um, And I think this is one of the problems with Kanye, who is definitely not known for his humility. (laughs) Um, He's got a lot of people around him and he's got money. So um, he can he can afford to not listen to his support people. Uh, I think I read a story that he had just kind of disappeared. Kim didn't know where he was, and you know he's just gone for days. And um, you know you can't just disappear like that when when you're like a regular. Person. You can't right, jump on right. a plane and go somewhere, you know. Right. You go to your mama's house, your mama say, girl, you better get on back home. <laughs> right. I can't deal with you right now. Um, so he, he has a lot of yes men mm-hmm. and yes women around him that, you know, either are incapable of recognizing his mental illness symptoms or they don't care enough to really say 
Oprah, we have got to we have got to get you to the hospital. Um, yeah. You are not well, and it's it's not easy. Yeah, being a mentally ill person who might be floridly manic or psychotic, that is not an easy person to convince to do anything. I know with my son Kamal. Um, we knew he was having an episode and when it was, you know, at its peak, trying to get him to the hospital was, oh, I mean, he would try to throw himself out of the car. I mean, one time I actually, my sister and I had to trick him into going to the hospital. We were like, we're going to go to breakfast. And fortunately, McDonald's was right across the street from the Mm. hospital. Mm. And we we got him breakfast, was like, come on over here and let's just, you know, see if we can talk to this first. Just a friend of mine, and I worked at the hospital, a friend of mine, I just want you to meet her. She's a cute girl, you know, and that's how we got him to the hospital this one particular time. But man, I can remember some harrowing experiences in which, you know, it was really hard to, to get him managed to get him even to the point where we could get him to the hospital. So I'm not saying that it's easy for the people around Kanye. He's got a lot of personality and he is uh, persuasive. And, um, but I mean, at, at the point that he is where publicly so much is coming out about his behavior and, and, you know, so many things are being done. uh, People know, people know he's not well right now. Um, and he has to, I don't think I was, I think I was still in my forties, uh, when I finally said, okay, you cannot keep going back and forth. Yes, I'm bipolar. No, I'm not. You know, I was misdiagnosed. No, I wasn't. I went back and forth with myself for so many years and probably toward the end of my forties, I finally said all right you you are bipolar you you can't you can't keep playing games with yourself so and i think i was first diagnosed when i was maybe 30 31 something like that and so it took all of that time for me to to really come to terms and accept it and not be ashamed of it to think of it as just a particular way that my brain works and um, take medication on a regular basis because like many bipolar people, I was notorious for taking medication and stopping medication and taking medication and stopping medication. And your brain never really acclimates. uh, So you're not going to see the the healing that you could see if you just stayed on medication until it got you to a therapeutic dose because you can also start medication and it could take you months, months to get to a therapeutic dosage. Mm. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is when you were talking about hum- humility, um, I think one of the factors, you know, in the business of art, the business of art is not conducive to helping you be humble, right? It is, right. you know, you're constantly dealing with rejection Right. Right. So we know even as writers, you know, you're constantly pitching or you're trying, you know, trying to get your work out there and you're dealing with rejection. So that is pushing you that if you already have a mental health challenge, that's pushing you potentially into one or two states. Right. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of that, and I think this is where maybe Kanye lives, um, is this idea of you're put on a pedestal. Right. Mm -hmm. So once you reach a certain point in your career that people deem as successful now you're having to maintain this status you're maintaining mm-hmm. this perception and i think both of those don't lend themselves well to humility and all the things that you just named that are needed in order to for a person to do what they need to do to be well i know i think about myself in my wrestling with you know ptsd and generalized anxiety disorder you know it you know, there are things in this business as a writer that can manipulate that if I'm not careful, 
right? Mm -hmm. If I'm not going to therapy, right? right? If I'm not doing the things I need to do in order to be well. Um, and then there's this factor of the people around a person. If you have an artist, writer, creative in your life, and you, um, and you know that there's a mental health challenge, is that this level of empathy that doesn't exist, you know, mm -hmm. like this mm -hmm. compassion, right? This understanding that this person what's happening if they're in a manic state and tell me if I'm wrong. Like if you're have if, if they're in a manic state, you know, how does a person that is in support love this person and show empathy for this person's situation, even if what that person is doing is attacking them, right? Uh -huh. Or causing some challenges for them. That that balancing act of I need to get, get you help, I need to help you, but also I need to love you, right? And I mm -hmm. think that part sometimes is missing, right. right? If you don't have the support around you, right? Sure. Um, so one of the things that, that came up for me when I was thinking about this topic was, um, and I've shared this with the audience, that I lost a family member to racial violence a couple of years ago. And one of the things that would just anger me so much was that people would say race these racist acts right because some of the issue with Kanye is that he's spewing a lot of in things that indicate internalized racism right mm -hmm. in an idea of uh, cons these conservative right-wing perspective that he's spewing right and so people are saying oh well that's a function of his mental illness or that this person who killed my cousin had a mental health I'm not sure I believe that I feel like mental health will exasperate what's already there. Mm -hmm. So if you're a racist, your mental health condition will exasperate it. But to call the, you know, because I'm, I know you, I know, I know myself, I know plenty of people who struggle with mental health that are not he out here spewing racist right. stuff. Right. So I'd love to get your take on that. Like this idea of racism as being a mental illness, as opposed to, you know, a mental illness exasperating racism. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I definitely think it's the latter. Okay. Um, I, I uh, Well, first of all, according to my psychiatrist, most mentally ill people, and this is, and these are huge, huge numbers, most mentally ill people are not out here killing people. Exactly. You know, so, you know, I mean, you could see someone that's just, over-the-top schizophrenic with their grocery cart, you know, pushing it down the street and, and screaming and hollering. But that person is probably not violent because they're not even going to let people get close enough. Now, right. of course, you know, we've all watched Investigation Discovery and <laughs> saw, you know, that troublesome episode where someone really is mentally ill, like an Andrea Yates that, you know, her... Uh, Mm -hmm. her mental illness and uh, probably postpartum depression, you know, and, and of course she had an extremely controlling husband and a very uh, rigid uh, religious system in which she was not given permission to have uh, postpartum depression. And she acted out in, you know, the most heinous way. Well, yeah, there are going to be some stories, but by and large, mentally ill people are not violent like that, except maybe towards themselves. Yeah. Um, and so when this label gets put on people who go into a grocery store or a movie theater or uh, a nightclub and just begin killing people, well, I don't think it's a race thing. I think... I think that's, you know, a clear indicator of a personality disorder. And there's a big difference between a mental illness and a personality disorder. You know, a personality disorder, you can't, you can't give them medication. That can't be fixed, right. you know, sadly. And um, I think that these people grow up in a certain way and these ideas get reinforced in their adulthood by whatever they're consuming, you know, whatever they're you know, watching, listening to, until 
they reach a point where they go out and do something horrible and uh, and it mental illness gets blamed and you know it really isn't fair to the families um to the victim uh or to people who are mentally ill you know who have enough stigma to to live with instead yeah. of you know here's this person is this mass shooter you know really they're a very disordered personality mm -hmm. and uh and and it's not mental illness. It's a very different thing. And is it, it and possible it, that they're just evil? Yeah. Because now I mean, I'm, like, I'm thinking like from a spiritual standpoint, right? You know? Yeah. Um, I definitely think evil exists. And I think people can definitely get into that, that lower, <laughs> what they call in some spiritual communities, lower vibrational energy, you know, so whether you want to call it low vibe or shadow evil self <laughs> or yeah or demonic mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that stuff is real i mean you don't have to look very far to see it in this world yeah and and um yeah yeah i i definitely think i definitely think we can court evil you know uh and i think the the person who who murdered your family member did court evil and uh, and evil he became. I think if you court beauty, you become beautiful. And if you if you court evil, you become evil. Mm. I, I love that you said that. And that's actually a really great segue to the, the sort of the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, if you court beauty, you become beauty. Right. And so I think the flip side of being an artist and being, you know, what, an artist in any form, right, a writer, dancer, singer, you know, whatever, is that we get the opportunity through language, through paint, <laughs> to mm -hmm. court beauty, right, through the, the lens of a, uh, of a camera, right, mm -hmm. we get a unique lens or an insight into beauty um and then through that experience you know we afford ourselves an opportunity to heal right and so i am very interested and that's what this you know really this whole show is about is like um healing journeys and how the arts help to facilitate that and i'd love for you to share i want to know what was the day, the moment, if you can remember, the moment where you just fell in love with writing? You fell in with, because I think mean, she's an artist, guys. She's a painter. Um, I have a huge piece on my living room wall <laughs> of her work. I was like, when she did it and she posted it, and she was like, eh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm like, uh, excuse me, how much, please? <laughs> please package it up nicely and send it to me. <laughs> um, so, I'm, so I'd love to know, like, the first time, you know, uh, and people who read your books kind of know will 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 learn a little bit about your story. But when was that first moment when you just fell in love with writing and art? And then when you realized that wow, there's something here that can that has a healing property to it. Um, I was I was a little girl when I discovered art, and like most children, children aren't really afraid of art, and they don't really talk out of it uh, until they get a little bit older and you know maybe criticism starts coming from peers or teachers and that can really slam the brakes on their creativity but I was always drawing when I was uh, a little girl so that part of the art thing there was just no question in my mind in fact I used to say I was going to be an artist when I grew up and my mom used to say, oh, yeah, she's going to be an artist. She's always drawing. And, uh, but for writing, it didn't really occur to me to write until I was 10 years old. And I was at school. I was at school. I was walking down the hall. And I think this was one of those pure God things that if God didn't do it this way, he would have done it. Or she. I don't like to give God a gender. Right, right, right. <laughs> God would have done it in some other you know, 
completely random way, but it was just time for me to step into this. So I'm walking down the hallway at school and I see a piece of paper on the, on the ground and I pick it up inexplicably. I have no idea why I stopped right in front of this piece of paper, why I picked it up, you know, why I didn't just keep walking past it like so many other students. So I pick up this piece of paper and there are snippets of dialogue, like from a play. Mm-hmm. And I go, I can do this. <laughs> I don't know what made me say it, but I was like, I can do this. So I started writing plays. And I was really shy in school. And I had this wonderful teacher named Mr. Wilson. And I, you know, I didn't really say a whole lot in, in school, but I asked him, could I do this play with some of my my classmates and so I gave them the, the script so to speak and and we did this play and he just thought it was so funny and he would let me do this all the time where I had no voice in that classroom not even to answer a question suddenly I had a voice suddenly mm. through characters I could come alive in a way that I didn't feel like I had permission to come alive uh, in other ways, even at home. You know, while uh, as a visual artist, I was supported. You know, I, I came from a very tumultuous family life. You know, there was addiction, there was mental illness, there was a lot of violence. And so to be able to express myself in such a clean, pure way, it was just like finding gold or or being parched and suddenly finding water. <sighs> so it was a beautiful thing. I, yeah, I was 10 years old and I never really stopped writing. Mm. Even, even when I wasn't prolific, you know, I might write a poem here or there. I never forgot that I was a writer. And once I, you know, I got grown, I got out into the world, um, and I started experimenting, you know, playing with boys, the kind of things that trip you up. Um, (laughs) I wasn't writing like that, but the desire to create, it was like something got activated, Mm -hmm. and the desire to create, you know, was driving in me even if i tried to ignore it or if i got caught up in other things in life in my marriage um whatever it was so finally i was going to writers conferences not writing i was buying thousands of dollars worth of writing books not writing um and finally when i was 40 i was uh i was ken my my husband uh, we're not married anymore but at the time, he was my husband. We, um, he was sick and he had to have an outpatient surgery. And we were so diminished in our life that we couldn't think of a person that could take us. We didn't even have a car. We couldn't think of who we could ask to take him to the hospital. So we just got on the city bus and then I felt so low. And I'm like, I was almost 40, not quite 40 yet. And I was, uh, when he, when I took him back, I went to the, to the, uh, waiting to the chapel in the hospital. And I was like, God, this is whack. I am almost 40 years old. I don't even have a car like most grown people. And this is terrible. I just feel like I'm at one of my lowest points that I've ever been at. And I think I just said, help. I don't even think I, you know, prolonged it. I just, I think I just, I said, I'm, I'm in this really dark place, help me. And um, I went back to the waiting room and there was a copy of Today's Christian Woman and it had Sherry Shepard from uh, The View. It had mm-hmm. her on the cover. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> I had read a lot of today's Christian women, and I had never seen a black woman on a on cover. The cover. I'm right. not sure that I would even saw one on the inside. 
Mm-hmm. But I certainly hadn't seen one on the cover. And I read that magazine from front cover to back cover, all the classified ads in it. And I just wanted to write for Jesus so bad. And I remember stealing that magazine because I was it was definitely going home with me. I took that <laughs> magazine right out that waiting room and I was <laughs> on the bus. I, we had stopped before he could, he was able to go, we had to, you know, he had to sit down for a little while. So we went to the cafeteria and he's eating and I'm reading and, and I'm reading on the bus. And then I get home that night and I said, Jesus, I held that magazine to my heart. And I said, Jesus, if you just let me write for you, I promise that I'll tell people who are like me that you want. And by like me, I meant hot mess. <laughs> I would tell the hot messes of the world that God put in front of me that they were so very loved. And, and then I just kind of forgot about it because I was just not the type of person that, you know, would make it in Christian publishing. They're, they're at this particular time, you know, Christian fiction was not edgy at all. And I was, you know, I was a knife blade. <laughs> and um, it was mostly white. And, 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 and when it wasn't white, it was really segregated. So yeah. that, you know, there was this handful of um, Black Christian fiction writers. And then there was this larger genre. And when you saw the Christian fiction, you did not necessarily think about this handful of Black people that were doing it. And I remember at the time, what, Denise Stenson. Do you remember Denise Stenson, mm-hmm. Walt Worthy Press? Yes, oh. yes, I do. <laughs> I wanted to be one of Denise's clients so bad, uh, one of her writers so bad. Um, but anyway, it was the segregation that existed and, um, you know, this colored and whites only drinking fountain uh and we're all with the fountain of life but you know the, the black fountain is over here and the white fountain is over there wow and these divides that you know just were difficult and um i had actually denise stenson had this contest and she said just send me a hundred pages and um and with you know we're going to choose like a dozen people and I'm going to get you in a hotel and I'm going to teach you everything I know about writing. I found out about this on a Friday. Wow. The deadline was Monday and I started writing and I had a hundred pages by Monday morning. You wrote 100 pages in a weekend. I wrote 100 pages that weekend. <laughs> Word. And because Denise Stinson was in Detroit, I didn't even have time to mail it. I dropped it off. You walked it over. Yeah. <laughs> I dropped it off. And, uh, and I was chosen as one of the people that she was going to tell everything she knew about writing. Amazing. And so... Um, she was really interested in my book. And at this time, I was already Ragamuffin Diva, and I was already blogging. And, uh, and around this time, Don Pape had discovered my blog. Uh, I think Lisa Sampson told him about it. And he sent me an email. And he was like, hey, I really love your blog. Um, it's really powerful. And would you write uh, a novel? for us. He, well, yeah, he was the president. He was the vice president of Waterbrook Press at the time. And, you know, who gets that email? Right. I just saw your blog. Will you write a note? He didn't even know if I could write fiction. Wow. I didn't know. I wasn't sure I could write fiction. So <laughs> um, I started, and me and Marilyn Griffiths, you know, we were oh, just yeah. in a pod at that time. And I was like, Mary, I got this email. She was like, girl, start writing. <laughs> and I couldn't think of anything. I was like, what do I know anything about? What am I going to write about that, you know, because I know this Waterbrook was a, a pretty much predominantly white Christian publisher. I'm like, I got to write something that the white folks are going to like too. <laughs> right. 
and I didn't know what to do. So um, this was when, you know, we still had Blockbuster yeah. and Hollywood videos. And, and my cable was cut off again. <laughs> so we would go down to Blockbuster, or it was Hollywood video. We were, we were in walking distance. And we would walk to there and get all these DVDs. So I'm like watching endless seasons of CSI. And I'm like, well, I know about CSI, that's for sure. Mm. And, um, and then I thought, well, it's got to have a love story because it's me. And it's, right. so I've got to put some love in there. So I said, well, um, so, and I'm, I'm writing this email back to Don and I'm making stuff up as I go. <laughs> and I'm like, well, there is a kind of a forensic uh, <laughs> crime novel about and I'm thinking, what do I know anything about a, a psychologist? <laughs> because I had studied psychology for two years. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and this <laughs> psychologist and her sister, <laughs> you know, is, uh, yeah, and I'm just really pulling stuff out of my behind. And he was like, yeah, that, that sounds great. You know, send that to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Mary, now I've got to write this. So I think it took me about maybe a week to get three chapters of Murder, Mayhem, and a Fine Man. Fine Man, my favorite. <laughs> Which it was actually called, this was me and Mary's title, it was called A Fling and a Prayer. And I just love mm. that title so much. I love <laughs> that. Wow. It, was, it was called A Fling and a Prayer. And... um but you couldn't say the word fling. <laughs> right, right. That would that meet CBA guidelines. <laughs> exactly. So um, I started writing, and he was like, this is the most fun and breezy thing that I've seen in a long time. Write it. Finish writing it. And so I kept writing, and four months later, I had Murder, Mayhem, and a, and a Fine Man. And... Um, and some sometime as I was writing, what's his name? Uh, they had a senior, I won't name it. They had a senior editor. He was in Publishers Weekly. And he was like, I don't think black people will really make it in the CBA because, you know, they would have to have, you know, their book would have to have a, a large appeal to white people. And I was so I, I uh, wrote down and I said, hey, your boy is on here on PW talking about black people not going to make it in CBA. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to step on his toes. Anyway, Don ended up having to quit and he became my agent and um, he sold Murder Mayhem and Fine Man to NAV Press, which also had its crazy because they decided the book was too sex. The books were too sexy. Um, as I was editing, dev editing the third one, and uh, and then they canceled them all. And then Simon and Schuster bought them all, uh, including the Exorcister book. So it was it was quite it was quite a wild ride. Um, That's a journey and a half. Yeah, you know, just yeah. that part right there. Oh, and that, yeah. that actually brings me to something because you, I, I can see you, you know, standing there with the, the magazine asking like, Jesus, please just let me write for you. And I think, you know, especially if you're like, quote unquote, a church girl, you may have had one of those moments, right? But you know, if anybody knows you now, knows that your spirituality has had a, a, a monumental evolution since yeah. the days of, you know, evangelical, let me, Jesus, please, you know, you've, yeah. you've, you've evolved, you've deconstructed, you've reconstructed, you've, you know, and so I'd love to hear about um, how your writing has changed or even how your writing facilitated this evolution in your spiritual journey because there may be people listening right now i know even myself who come from a particular background the strict evangelical you know background who are in the process of deconstructing their faith you know looking at their spirituality more holistically and you know but they're also creators and they're also artists and they understand how this business is like once you're out of cba you're out of cba right, right? like so what does that mean for you and also like just how has your art facilitated that journey um 
I think I knew pretty, while I was knee deep in CBA world, I think I knew that I didn't want to be a CBA author. I mm. think that felt the restrictions, you know, were so crazy. I remember Mary and I had a list of things that you could not say in this particular publisher's books. And you couldn't say the word panties. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I don't know, maybe if I had a You couldn't draws, say panties? I couldn't say panties, but maybe if I had a said draws, I could have <laughs> <laughs> draws to get you in. <laughs> exactly. So um, and you couldn't say like the word bishop. And it was like, well, what, what's wrong with the word bishop? That's too black, child. Only <laughs> only black folks call their pastors bishop, honey. <laughs> and Catholics. And Catholics, <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and that neither one. <laughs> exactly. And for those who don't know, CBA is the Christian Booksellers Association where you know evangelical book publishers kind of live in that space. So for those who don't know. Yes. So I, um, I just thought it wasn't honest. And people were always telling me how honest and transparent I was. And I'm like, listen, if you knew, <laughs> like, I know you would be throwing holy water at your girl because, you know, <laughs> help me, Jesus. Um, so, so I didn't feel it was honest. I felt like it was very, very dishonest. And... You know, while there was a lot of, I took a lot of comfort into being able to read a book and there is no um, gratuitous sex in it. And there is no, well, there might be a little violence. My books were a little bit violent, but you know, there's not, uh, well, they were murder mysteries, so. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, where I wasn't finding gratuitous language, you know, it was comforting, you know, for a while. But I didn't even live in that space right there. You know, there was all kinds, you know, my, my husband was a, you know, raging drug addict for years. And, you know, in this particular publisher, you couldn't, you couldn't mention drug addiction, you know. Um, and, and it was just really sad that so much life and so much story was out there that couldn't be told because it didn't fit with these ideals. And of course, later, you know, you stick around long enough, you're gonna see all the sacred cows topple. Um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the people who were the strongest proponents of, you know, let's say something you know, that maybe not queer friendly. Um, you know, suddenly you find out this person, you know, was was gay the whole time. Right. And, you know, what we didn't know because everybody's keeping up appearances. Right. Um, so I didn't I didn't want to stay there. And also I thought the quality of the art was not as good as the quality of art that you found in literary fiction. Mm. And I wanted to elevate my writing to to be beautiful I, I didn't want to just be able to tell a fun story or a funny story or a sad story i wanted to be able to tell a story beautifully mm -hmm. um, and so i ended up going back to graduate school my friend elizabeth i don't know how she talked me into it because i was like no no i'm not gonna do that and since somehow i was applying and then somehow i was going to louisville every couple of months mm -hmm. and suddenly I was you know getting an MFA that I wasn't expecting but <laughs> what I did expect out of myself as an artist was to grow I wanted to grow as an artist and it was kind of a parallel path with my spirituality I always wanted as much Jesus as I could have you know so um I went from, I mean, you get you get a whole lot of Jesus as a as a black charismatic. You definitely <laughs> get a lot of Jesus. <laughs> a lot. A lot of a whole lot of Jesus that even Jesus don't have. <laughs> exactly. And um, so it's not like I didn't have like 
very hearty portion of the Holy Ghost, but you know, I just want it more and more. So I looked at the history of Christianity and I looked into ancient Christianity and I found myself in the Orthodox Church and, and then they so ethnic, ethnically divided in the Orthodox Church. And although I was with, you know, probably the wildest of the bunch who had this ancient Christianity and African American conference every year, that was a wonderful, solid, beautiful community. But then I'd go back home to church and it was Romanian. And I'm not Romanian and I didn't see myself. Uh, and man, the Orthodox Church, they just drew such a hard line. Um, you know, don't do this and don't say that. And if you do, you are not one of us. And it felt divisive to mm. me. And I didn't think I should be feeling that. So I ended up going to the Catholic Church, which was a dumpster fire at the time. And it still is. <laughs> I like a love-hate relationship with my church. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'm, I'm in confession and I'm like, blah, 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 you know, and I'm just cussing it. You know, so I get a pedophile priest. And I know my, my poor priest, he must be like Jesus. <laughs> What did I do <laughs> to get this one? But yeah, um, but I, I went to the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church for one thing, the Eucharist, because they said this was the real body and blood of Jesus. And so if, if it could be more real than what I was experiencing, I wanted more real. And now... Um, the religion that I practice, you know, I do say I'm a very bad Catholic, but really my religion is the love of God. There is only one thing and it's the love of God. And the love of God creates this huge table of plenty and everyone is invited. People that I don't even want to be at the table can come to the table. I don't want R. Kelly to be at the table, but God's grace is enough mm. for even Robert. It pains me to say. Well, I, God's still working with. He's still working on me with that one. <laughs> Let's just say God's still working on me because uh, still working on me because I'm I'm kicking Robert's tape chair over. <laughs> no, he can't sit here. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Girl, I know, I know. And like, um, you know, I think Erica Badu uh, got a lot of pushback when she said he deserved unconditional love because, you know, the sisters was like, no, he don't. Right. I was one of them. So was I, but I was like, man, but I do see what she's saying. <laughs> I know what she's saying because I know God and I know, I know God's love. Right. Um, so, and, and how that's reflected for me as an artist, I think love should compel you to create your greatest work. Uh, love should compel you to move beyond mediocrity mm. and into creating true beauty. Um, and it's not easy, you know, uh, for the book that you published, Don't You Fall Now, I really wanted to elevate language and ideals and you know like there are some cuss words and don't you fall now but I felt like those were the right words but those more right importantly words. than that those were the words that were in my head and heart you know this was creative nonfiction so I needed to tell the truth yes and um and sometimes even, like, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't think I know that I wrote about wondering after my son was having psychotic episode after psychotic episode, and I was so afraid for, you know, once, once I'm gone, because who's going to make sure he gets, who's going to wrestle him to the hospital, mm -hmm. you know, when, when it's not me? Um, I worried about him, and then I, I said, God, why would you? allow him to live 
from this accident if this would be his life afterwards. And it was really hard to admit that I had that thought, but it was there and it was real and it was the truth. And I felt like as an artist, I needed to tell the truth. Mm. So, you know, not everybody is, you know, painted with uh, these really fuzzy, warm colors in the book. Uh, it's it's a raw, difficult family story that is ultimately very hopeful. But there were hard things that I had to write about in that book, as you know. So as an artist and as a spiritual person, I went from having this God that had many, many boxes um, and certainly was, you know, ever ready to knock me upside the head mm -hmm. to um, having this God who had no boxes and um, was all love and, you know, People could say, you know, does that mean that you don't believe that that God, you know, has wrath? And what about hell? And what about, you know, the Old Testament angry God? You know, <laughs> and this takes me to some ideas that I have, even about the scriptures. You know, like I, I was, I was uh, reading a book by Christina Cleveland. And she was talking about how she got a lot of pushback when she was supposed to think about this God of love who murdered everybody except for one family. Like everyone on earth, how do you reconcile that with love? And sometimes I think that the people who wrote the scriptures, who wrote these stories down, they're just like us trying to understand the creator of all things and um, trying to make sense of the things that happen. Say there's this huge flood and it wipes out so many people. Well, how do you make sense of that kind of tragedy? Mm -hmm. you, you go to um, the things that you believe in the deepest part of your heart. And I think, I think that's just what it all is. People, and these stories are inspired. I do believe the Bible is inspired. I think, I think we're inspired and I think our stories are inspired. And no, they may not ever reach the canon of scripture, but you know, I think as an artist, I want people to be able to see in my work, this is what I, came to know about God. This was my experience of God. And this is how I make sense of the world based on this experience of God that I have. So, you know, I, calling me a heretic, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> By any definition, we're all heretics. You so. know, I'm, I'm prepared <laughs> to come flying my way, but... I it's think all we good. all try to make sense we're of God. Like, and I think that's powerful. Yeah. We're, we're all trying to make sense of, um, and we're, none of us are right, you know? Like, we're all trying to make sense of um, the spirit realm and, the, and, and who we believe God to be. Um, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your mind and your heart. Um, and so I just got to leave it with our final question. We, this, this season, we started asking our guests this. Um, it just kind of happened organically. And then I said, okay, I'm going to do this every episode. Because um, I think it's, it's, a, it's an important grounding point for everything that you just said. Who is Claudia? Uh, Claudia is just a <laughs> a dark twisty bright sparkly <laughs> unicorn for jesus um you know i'm just i'm just a human you know just full of beauty and wonder and terror 
and ugliness. I'm just a human uh, here trying to make my way through this world the best I can to do the least amount of harm and to tell as many people as I can that God loves you and that there's only that. There's only that. Mm. Thank you, Claudia. I appreciate you. Love you, sis. You too. Love you too. Heart Talk is written and produced by my mommy, Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggins, for Heart Space and New Season Books and Media. Go to hearttalkpodcast.com to learn more. See you next time.